The unofficial end to summer is here. School has started for most, football season is upon us, and soon the leaves will be changing color. At the DSR Network, we remain as busy as ever with a full slate of podcasts scheduled for the fall. In the coming weeks, we'll be launching two new shows with new hosts, creating even more content for our members. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, bonus content, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of September, you'll receive 20% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SCHOOL at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SCHOOL. Thank you for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the second episode in a special limited series of podcasts from the DSR Network. This episode is the second half of our first Road to COP28 roundtable, hosted by Dean Emerita of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, Rachel Kite. This second episode, the second half of the discussion that you may have heard last week, or you may have heard it just the other day, if that's when you downloaded it, features more from our fantastic panel of climate experts and an appearance by Senator Ben Cardin, to share his insights from previous COP events. Uh, We hope that you will join us each and every week for more in this very important series, which will continue all the way until the COP meeting takes place in December. Please note that this series of programs has been sponsored in part by a grant from the UAE Embassy in the United States. The UAE is the host nation for COP28. However, it should be noted for this As for all DSR podcasts, all content is completely editorially independent, and each of the independent chair people of the roundtables has been solely responsible for the direction of the conversations you hear, which are offered to you, recorded exactly as they occurred, and unedited. So, let's pick up where we left off last time with a question from chairperson Rachel Kite. So back to Mark and to Miguel, there there is this question of of equity, right, or of justice, right? Not everybody in the planet got us to this point. Um, Sometimes those who had the least to do with the trajectory of emissions that brought us to this point are the most vulnerable within a country as well as between countries. Does that does that get in the way of how we can talk about the science or bring the science into the conversation? Uh, or how do, we, how do we sort of build a sort of broader coalition of action based on the fact that uh, there, are, there are 
there are countries and there are communities within countries on whom the burden for doing more has to fall, right? Uh, Miguel. Manuel, sorry. No problem, Rachel. You know that that is the most common mistake for an English native speaker between Manuel and Miguel. Okay, but yeah, no problem. terrible. No, 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 no problem. So let me connect the two discussions. So something that I think it is happening, and, and, and David uh, said it clear, it is that we are looking how much we have an economic case for climate. And the IRA directive in Europe, uh, plus the Green Deal, among the taxonomy, among many, many other political signals, are helping to that economic case. And in my point of view, we have to continue insisting on that economic case. Because I think that in the beginning, what we did through this Global Commission on Climate and the Economy that did a fantastic work, it was to organize sectors and, and did it great. But I think that now we are in a time in which that economic case should evolve even more into defining climate as a clear condition for economic development. Because more than just to think that this is about an agreement, that it is a Britain paper, it is about the economy. And also to you, Jennifer, mentioned some of those numbers. And it will be by having that clarity that we could continue moving even the poorest countries of the world even the, the, the developing world towards the same, something that unfortunately, for example, is not happening in Latin America. Latin America, it is not discovering that this is about the economy and that if we are not enough climate responsible, we will be behind the others. But let's go into your topic, uh, Rachel, that it is about more equity and justice. What does it mean to be equity and justice in the climate debate? We are always forgetting one of the main principles of the Paris Agreement. Don't leave anyone behind. You remember that principle? It's interesting because probably most of people have already for, for, forgotten the principle, don't leave anyone behind. Is that happening? Because on the other hand, what it is happening with this economic case of climate, it is that some kind of protection within borders, it's coming back. Because I'm not sure, David, if you agree, but in some way, IRA, but it is mostly because of the U.S. What it is fantastic in sense, U.S., it is a key player, but on the other hand, what it could be the consequence in some other part of the world. And it is the same with Europe. No, in which, for example, small producers of cocoa among some other crops are suffering because some European directive, no? that are limiting and not recognizing the reality in the forest, that it is a more non-formal reality, as it is used to happening in the developing world. So the point it is how much we are developing economic or we are taking economic decisions that are not supporting and helping justice and equity. That moves me to a second point in relation to that, that it is we haven't developed and it is never Clearly, in the debate, it is not in the top priority of the debate, trans uh, technology transfer and capacity building. And remember that those two are key elements of the Paris Agreement. Because if we summarize the Paris Agreement, we have the threshold, the objective, the means of implementation, and then we have the supporters, finance, technolo technology transfer and capacity building. 
But what kind of decisions we are taking based on that? Nothing. We are not discussing those two pieces that are key pieces for the climate debate. And finally, this moves me to the point of just transition. Just transition in, in, in Katowice, in the COP in Katowice, got good traction. In my point of view, uh, most of people is thinking that it is just about jobs and salary. For me, it is more than that. It is about development. It is about development alternative. It is about on how can we granted, guaranteed, secure some development alternative for countries that will produce a desired change because of the climate debate. And, and for me, a good example of a just transition need, it is the Amazon. In many Amazonian countries, they will suffer because of the gradual phasing out of fossil fuels, because their main source of, uh, uh, of income, it is because of the ro royalties of hydro hydrocarbons, but also because of this model that IPCC, it is telling that it could produce a savanization of the Amazon. So can you imagine less incomes, savanization process for the Amazon? Clearly needs a just transition. And those are the kind of discussion that we haven't yet uh, started or addressed. So, so interesting, uh, Rachel, that you have brought this equity and justice element that I think deserve more attention. So can I just pick that up and then throw it to, to the scientists, uh, starting with you, uh, Mark, and, and then the others. So you know, Gavin was pretty clear, right, that um, the science uh, is reasonably clear and then the, the stock take would sort of put a political gloss on the fact that we're not on track. So we're, we are going to overshoot 1.5 and that... It, it, that may be a scientific debate which people are comfortable with, but in the policy world, people get you know a little freaked out by it. We're walking into a cop where we're not on track, um, and the political overtones I think we're picking up in the run-up to COP, and we'll probably see when when people arrive in Dubai is this this question of who decides, right? So we we are going to overshoot, but then who decides how much we overshoot, and who decides how we get back uh, you know we come back to sort of 1.5 through the back door as it were because we miss it through the front door and this again this deep sense of injustice that the people who are going to pay the biggest price and of course nature pays the price as well we're going to Ruth's work um you know won't really have the same kind of voice at the table that there's a you know this fear that sort of we're going to start having technological discussions with, with tables built the same way that they've been built for the last 20 to 30 years and what seems like a very sort of technocentric debate, okay, well, we're going to overshoot, so therefore we need to do this, this, and this, actually has these huge human consequences, um, uh, especially for certain societies and for certain nations, and, and has big consequences for the uh, nature's ability to sustain us. So to the scientists, how, how do we resolve these two things? And we're going to have a cop where, you know, countries are going to come and say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." The over the 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 stock take shows that we're not on track, and we've heard from Majid, the 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 the, the director general of COP, that they have a four point plan. They're going to raise more money. They're going to push forward renewables. They're going to deal with energy efficiency. But these are sort of sort of vertical approaches to what is a, a system failure. So I think the most important thing is to start, and I think Gavin raised this issue very importantly, which is 
again, the science says, unless we do something incredibly radical overnight, we're not going to uh, stick to the 1.5. But again, this is actually semantics. It's a target that was set as an aspirational target in Paris. And I have to say, I saw an interview with Greta when she was asked exactly the same question by the BBC. What happens if we miss 1.5? And she said, I'll fight for 1.6. I'll fight for 1.7. I will keep going and I will keep fighting. Because as she said, the science shows if we can limit the the warming to any degree, then the impacts will be less. And so we know that. So if we warm up the planet by over two degrees, we will have the impacts that the science predicts for over two degrees. So that's clear. I think we should go back to the incredible importance of the just transition, because I think sometimes we forget when we're talking about this, we forget about the actual state of the world at the moment. So about 825 million people go to bed feeling hungry every night. In a world where we produce enough food for 10 billion people, and there's only 8 billion people, about 7 million children die needlessly from preventable diseases and starvation, and still 1 billion people do not have regular safe access to clean drinking water. So when we're talking about the future of the world, we also have to remember the world at the moment for a large majority of people is actually not good. And we have to think about this. We need that energy transition because we need to lift them out of energy uh, poverty. The estimates are, at the moment, 79% of our energy is produced from fossil fuels. Renewables are going exponential, but they're only eating up the increase. They're not actually eating away at that baseline. We also know that some of the conservative estimates is that we're going to have to double the energy production by 2050, particularly to lift those billions of people out of energy poverty. So that means we're going to have to produce 180% of today's energy in a renewable form that isn't fossil fuels. And then we unpick why are the least developed countries not transitioning to cheap, safe secure renewable energy. Well, it's twofold. One, that 100 billion that was promised in 2009, ratified in 2010, and kept promising, still hasn't turned up from the rich world. And as we know, it's basically loose change at the back of the sofa of the developed world. It just hasn't actually uh, occurred. But there's also another interesting thing, which is where the finance system. We at UCL could not understand why these countries were still investing in coal-fired power stations, because they're more expensive and they're awful to run and you don't have energy security until we looked at the banking. And we found that banks, international banks, you know, state banks, you know, were lending at a higher rate of interest for renewables than fossil fuels. And why? Whoa, it's this new technology. So sometimes we have to actually get into the nuts and bolts to understand why we're not having a just transition. The other key thing here is also how do we ensure that we make sure that that transition happens? The International Energy Authority keeps pointing out there's a trillion dollars in direct and indirect subsidies going to fossil fuels companies every year. And this was mentioned 
in the COP26 climate pact, the first time fossil fuels were ever mentioned in a climate agreement, which my students find ridiculous. You know, how can you have a climate agreement and not mention fossil fuels? Isn't this the, one of the major causes? And again, we have to unpick that. Now, the interesting thing is Dubai, COP28, we're in the heart of the oil and gas country. How can we ensure that we actually make sure that the fossil fuel subsidies are removed by countries and make sure then we can have an equitable transition to those renewables that we need? And I'll leave you with one other fact, which people always forget. There are 8 million people that die prematurely every year because of fossil fuel caused air pollution. So thank you, Mark, for that tour de force. Um, we've just been joined by uh, Senator Ben Cardin, uh, the uh, senator from the great state of Maryland. Thank you very much for joining us, sir. Uh, we've uh, been uh, discussing the sort of urgency of the science, uh, the um, sort of the political climate and what we can expect to achieve at COP28 on the back of a global stock take that shows that we're not on uh, track, uh, science, which is sort of becoming more and more urgent as we understand it. And so this gap, this uh, credibility gap between uh, sort of action and, um, and aspiration. Um, you uh, sit on the Foreign Relations uh, Committee. You uh, sit on the Environmental Public Works Committee. You've got a long commitment to environmental action. Perhaps uh, give us your insights and your, your wisdom. Well, Rachel, first of all, thank you very much. And thank you to the Fletcher School for putting this together. Uh, yes, I was listening to a little bit of the technical information, which is so valuable. And I thank you all for being organized. Uh, COP28 presents an opportunity for us. I have uh, my, uh, since uh, 2015, uh, when I was at the, the COP uh, uh, conference in Paris, I have led senators to each one of the uh, COP meetings. So I've been to many of the COP opportunities. Uh, we had 10 senators in Paris in 2015, and it was a major turning point in the international commitment to deal with the climate crisis. Uh, we were able at that uh, to, to come up with a political formula that could have the support of the United States. And that's when President Obama finessed uh, avoiding a treaty. Uh, from the previous mistakes that were made at, at these climate summits uh, to doing uh, individual st state determinations, but using the bully pulpit for states to comply and strengthen their individual commitments. Uh, and that strategy, I think, uh, really set the formula for the future. And I, I agree the 1.5 was to a certain degree aspirational, but it was also urgent. If you don't make the 1.5, the consequences are even more dire than they are now. Uh, the way I put, put it, pointed out is that we've already passed the point of no return. We've already caused uh, uh, irreversible damage. And er every day we wait, we're causing more damage uh, to future generations and adding to food insecurity and adding to global instability. So it, it is a, 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 we're in crisis mode and we have to do everything we possibly can. I was at the COP meetings when President Trump withdrew us from uh, the climate talks. And we were there to say that the United States might have tried to pull America out, but we were still there. 
And we were extremely active in those COP sessions to keep the international community focused on the commitments that were made in Paris and to try to really uh, keep uh, the international will to do something about it. And yes, I was at the COP meeting in Sharm el-Sheikh in which um, there were some results. It was in some respects disappointing that we didn't make further progress. But let me tell you, these climate uh, gives us an opportunity first to put a spotlight on the good things that are being done, to use our our persuasion to get countries that are not doing everything they need to do to do more. So these are very important meetings. And I will be in Dubai leading a large delegation of United States senators um, uh, because we think it's worthwhile. We're gonna, it's going to be difficult for us. We probably have to fly out um, for a long weekend. Uh, and that's not, it's a long flight for a long weekend, but we're going to be there because we know how important it is. Uh, to represent those causes. So let me just take you back very quickly. I, I know how this, this works, and it it's hard to describe, but obviously uh, UAE will play a major role since they're the host country, so that's one of the focal points. UAE really wants to be an energy leader in the future, and they recognize that renewables have to be part of their portfolio. They've reached out to uh, the uh, environmental community to try to get cred- uh, credibility. So I think there is some uh, hope that they will exercise that leadership role in a very fundamental, positive way on our carbon footprint. But what we decided to do in Sharm El Sheikh was to first, yes, we have to reduce our carbon footprint. And there were additional commitments that were made, including the United States. We bragged about the IRA bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, and we had tremendous credibility. Uh, and we sort of pushed Europe to do more and Asia to do more based upon what we did. They were complaining that we were doing too much. We told them to catch up. So it was we were feeling really strong as far as having showcased the Inflation Reduction Act. But we also developed the adaptation funds that we recognized that the consequences of climate is with us. And we all should do everything we can to adapt to the realities of where we are, in addition to reducing the carbon footprint, but to recognize that the the, the vulnerable people to the current circumstances are usually those that are uh, underserved communities, poor communities, et cetera. And we have a responsibility to make sure we do everything we can to protect those communities. And then we have always had the traditional arguments between the different funds to help the developing world. We recognize that's a political hurdle that in today's environment in Congress is impossible for us to deal with directly. And the international community understands that. So we have been very active, and we'll do this again in Dubai, saying where the America can help the developing world deal with climate much more aggressively than we're dealing today. The international financing banks are not doing their job. We can do a lot more there. United States is the largest contributor to that. That's a way that we can help the developing world deal with a lot of these challenges. We have uh, different funds, the Amazon Fund, which we hope that we'll be party to, that deals with, with, with that particular issue. We have the program that is, is small in size, but important here, the migratory, the neotropical migratory birds are funds that the U.S. taxpayers paid to other countries to protect habitat, uh, which has changed dramatically as a result of climate change. So we will put a spotlight 
on those programs that were helping the developing world, recognizing we're not going to be able to meet their expectations of what we need to do to help them in a green type fund. But uh, we know that will also be an issue that we have to deal with in Dubai. The bottom line is, this is our opportunity to put a spotlight on the fact that we have to do better than we're doing today. We have to live up to our commitments, and the United States is living up to its commitments, but we have to do better than that, and we have to take the best practices. The developed world needs to have sensitivity to the developing world. We recognize that, and some of the larger polluters, uh, such as China and India, are going to be challenges that we all have to put a spotlight to try to get them to move more aggressively than they are today. These are the, the challenges that we are confronting. We have no choice. We only have one Earth. We've got to do everything we possibly can, and we have to work within the politics of the of the global community. And uh, that requires the best scientific information so we make the right decisions from what science tells us, but also our best political judgment as to the, how far we can take in, in reaching these goals. And I can tell you there's a lot of United States senators who are going to be very much engaged on both fronts. Thank you. Can I just ask you a very quick sort of follow-up question um uh, one of the recent cops and i think it was um uh, a a veteran negotiator a veteran minister sort of said to me you know the rest of the world has to understand more about the u.s primary system the u.s electoral system uh gerrymandering and everything else because our futures depend on who gets into the White House and what kind of administration is formed in the United States because uh, because of the, uh, the 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 size of the U.S. economy, it seems to me that since Sharm El Sheikh, the biggest news story is the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, so, what kind of reception do you think you'll get as the congressional delegation when you get to Dubai? Because this has certainly had um, a sort of ripple effect across the global economy in a very positive way, but also raised some questions for some other countries about just uh, how they will get access to global trading, global uh, global industry, and to, to, the, to the incredible sort of uh, booster that uh, President Biden's given to the U.S. economy. Well, on U.S. leadership on international issues, whether it's climate or whether it's security or whatever it might be, uh, the first question I'm always asked is about the stability of our political system, not just who's going to be in the White House, but can we govern in Congress? Can we keep mm -hmm. government open? Are we going to pay our bills? So there, those issues are really serious challenges we have today in credibility with the international community. That's why we see a lot of countries covering their bets, whether it's on security or whether it's on other issues. Uh, so you're absolutely correct that that's an issue that is brought up frequently. And, and look, I'm I'm going to fight uh, on Election Day to get as many environmentally sensitive people in office as possible from the president of the United States through the Congress of the United States. And I hope we are successful. But let me be clear. Once elections are over, you got to govern. you got to figure out the cards that are dealt under a democratic system are the cards we have to play. So uh, we'll, we will try to manage uh, the current situation. So look at President Biden. Yes, he was elected, but he was given a 50-50 Senate for his first two years. And look at being able to get the Inflation Reduction Act done. Uh, that was that was an incredible accomplishment. 
And then, by the way, the infrastructure bill, which was bipartisan, yeah. contains tremendous uh, uh, tools in regards to the climate agenda. We didn't call it that. We called it other things like adaptation, but it's still in there. So uh, we were able to manage the situation. Now we have a more difficult hand in the United States House of Representatives. And so far, we've been able to play a lot of good defense. Uh, whether we'll be able to play offense is another story. But we are still managing our our commitments. So my, my message to our international friends is that, look, we recognize the United States responsibility as a, as a wealthy nation. We also recognize the United States opportunities as a, as the world leader from the democratic states. We recognize both of those responsibilities and we're there and we intend to continue to be there. And we hope that we will be able to be successful politically. There's no guarantees in a democratic society as to who's going to be elected to different positions. But we can tell you we have we have strong support and some of that, particularly among the public, which is strongly bipartisan, by the way, that we have a lot of uh, 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 interest in, uh, on the climate agenda. People see it every day. So we, we point that out. Uh, and we point out that our country has been very resilient over its years. We've gone through a lot of different changes in government, and we're optimistic about America's future. So step up, do what you need to do. Let's continue to, for every country to take on its, its what it can do and the leadership to make sure that we work together. Well, Senator Cardin, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Look forward to seeing you in Dubai. And um, yes, plenty to do onward and upward. Thank you. Absolutely. Stay well, everybody. Thanks for your involvement. Thank you. So back to this amazing uh, constellation of scientists. Um, you know, what 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 do we want to see from COP28, both on the, from the government side, but COPs have become... Um, They've become trade fairs now. I mean, I think that the estimate is going to be 80,000 people in Dubai, which in and of itself has an environmental footprint that perhaps another podcast can discuss. But um, what uh, what what should we be looking for? What Where do we really need political momentum, Ruth? Yeah, thanks, Rachel. Um, I'm going to ask, answer that question in two ways. One is going to be a very uncharacteristic answer because I work on the nature-based side of things. But I would say that what COP28 needs to focus on is getting the fastest and most effective way to reduce emissions. Just. And that is through the uh, through the energy transition. So while nature is wonderful, um, we need to focus on the biggest emitters, the fastest ways, the the effective ways to get uh, get an energy transition. So while I'm a nature person, um, <laughs> I would I would really look to focus heavily on the energy transition side. That's where the emissions are coming from, mostly. Um, that said, on the nature-based solutions, um, yeah. we there's a lot of discussion at, at every COP around how to keep forests standing, how to plant trees to sequester carbon, restore mangroves, etc. And I, getting back to the conversation we were having about justice, I think there's a lot of thinking about how to have these nature-based solutions in a way that is just to the communities and the people whose land and coastlines are actually affected. Currently, 
business as usual will be a lot of um, uh, you know project developers and private sector swooping in to take advantage of that opportunity. But unless those communities and people on the ground benefit from these solutions, they first of all won't be just, and second, they will not be not have any longevity. So those are my two answers: one, focus on the energy transition, and two, focus on the justice and equity issues in nature-based solutions. Well, from your lips to negotiators' ears. So, <laughs> um, uh, Dave, uh, David. Yes, so uh, first of all, I, I just have to say that I am encouraged by the optimism that I hear in this call. And um, I, I like what Gavin said uh, earlier about, um, you know, there, there's no bad time. Uh, to to make this transition reminds me of the saying, you know, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. The best time to to peak global emissions was 20 years ago. And the second best time is now. And if we don't hit now, then the next best time will be next year. Um, so I, I I love the relentless optimism. I love the, the focus there. Um, uh, and again, a lot of our work here focuses on nature-based solutions. But I'd have to echo what, what Ruth said, which is that, you know, the energy transition is critically, critically important. Um, uh, if we are going to talk about nature-based solutions, we've had a spotty history at COPS about following through on um, pledges of assistance to tropical forest nations, and that gets to both mitigation, keeping those tropical forests intact is critically important, and it's also an equity um, uh, conversation. Uh, you know, we've uh, we made big commitments at Paris that didn't get followed through on. The ones at Glasgow seem to be a little more promising. So um, hopefully, if the world turns its attention to tropical forest conservation then there will actually be follow through. Uh, and the last thing I would say in terms of what we're looking for, uh, since, um, as we've covered at this call, you know, we're, we're going to exceed 1.5, um, is real progress on the loss and damage conversation and the adaptation conversation. Um, uh, you know, loss and damage fund was celebrated uh, at Sharm el-Sheikh, but without a lot of meat on the bone. There wasn't, um, you know, it was kind of an agreement to have a discussion about a fund, which will then we'll have to figure out how to fund it. Um, so there's a lot of steps to go before uh, before that becomes a reality. But um, but the impacts are now, and they'll only get worse. So uh, so having real conversations about that, I think, is an important step on the equity conversation. Yeah, I mean, one of the arguments is that that actually, you know, in focusing on on really incredible breakthrough on loss and damage, that the one thing we didn't come out of Sharm el Sheikh with was it was a reasonable conversation about how to fund adaptation that was sort of you know we we got one and, and didn't get the other and of course we didn't get the language on phasing out phasing down fossil fuels. Um, Gavin, uh, you uh, you got us all going with your uh, framing of uh, emissions reduction and an overshoot. What what would you like to see come out of COP twenty eight? Um, if I can insert a note of uh, mild cynicism, I'm not really expecting anything very much. Um, you know, we have uh, th these these uh, these events uh, play a number of roles. One is is getting everybody together to to talk about these things, exchange ideas, exchange best practices. That's a very useful thing that comes out of these things. Um, 
but uh, but we spend an awful lot of time worrying about what the final communique is that is forgotten the instant that it's published. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of background negotiation that, that goes on, but that's going on all year. Like it doesn't really need the cops, uh, the, the actual meetings. Uh, and so so there is progress on things like loss and damage and uh, and and uh, adaptation funds and REDD. Uh, and so those are those those are those are great. But the the key thing, I think, is that I. None of none of none of what we're talking about is going to be solved at one meeting or with one conversation or with one set of funding rounds. You know, we're talking about a situation that needs to be sustained and sustainable, uh, not just for 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 this year or this decade or for the next twenty years, next thirty years, but for pretty much the rest of the century. And so, uh, one has to have a long view uh, of of these processes. And there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of fluctuations, but we have to be pushing like kind of relentlessly to 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 keep this going and to keep and to keep the momentum uh going and and i understand why events are are you know they're focusing uh and i understand why these meetings are are you know a, a big news items and that's that's helpful um but i think to worry too much about what happens at any one meeting or with any one communique or with any one statement uh, is to kind of miss the 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 forest for the trees. Uh, those are those are trees, and the forest is just making sure that this conversation and these actions are sustainable uh, in a very broader sense, not not just in the kind of energy transition sense. Yeah, it's extremely complicated, isn't it? Because you know. Th- there's such a build-up to a COP that you sort of get people running around trying to get their pledges organised. They've got to deliver on those pledges afterwards. But it's sort of, you get you get an uptick in momentum, and then you've got to sustain the momentum afterwards. But cumulatively, these are becoming like uh, 365 seven days a week uh, conversations because it, it, it's our economic system which has grown um, uh, grown lazy and obese on fossil fuels, right? That's got to, we've got to have a core muscle strength and a, and a different kind of economy and no one summit will achieve that. So to David, David Cash, right? Mm. I mean, here you are. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I mean, I'm living in Massachusetts. We've got a, a mayor who's hot to, to mm-hmm. trot on, on climate in Boston. Yes. We've got a governor that's got mm-hmm. an ambitious agenda. And when you talk to their teams, they've got like two to three years because of the election cycle. Yeah, yeah. They've got like this really, really small window mm-hmm. in which to uh, explain yeah. to the good people of Massachusetts what they've spent their money on, whether they've had any impact. So what does the COP mean for sort of local action, do you think? Yeah, so that's a great question. This is what I've been thinking about as you've been having the conversation for the last 10 or 15 minutes, how I think messages need to come out of the COP because, of course, most people don't understand what a COP is, don't write that connects the uh, activities that are happening on the global stage with what's happening in everybody's community, on their street, in their jobs. Those stories need to be told because I think as Men, as Manuel said, um, the, the, the ethos of the Paris Agreement of don't leave anyone behind, there are a lot of folks being left behind. And you know, uh, when you talk about electoral, you know, three years, four years left or whatever it is, the more that we nail this stuff down so it becomes part and parcel of the economic well-being, the the new norm for the economy, the more it's going to stick. I mean, you take a state like Texas in the United States, a very Republican state that 
doesn't really have policy related to climate change. It's where the fastest wind development is happening. Why? Because it's part and parcel with now the, the energy economy in Texas. And so the more that all of these, you know, the more that energy efficient technologies, that electric vehicles, that jobs that are happening in the clean energy space, people see around them, the more it's not going to depend on who's the next mayor, who's the next governor, even who's the next president. And I think the, the conversation that happens around these huge international events, the more they're focused on the stories that are happening on the ground that the regular person can identify with, I think that's, you know, that, that'll be a victory when uh, people leave, leave the next cop and there's a greater understanding for people on the ground in communities that clean energy is the next, is the future. Even, and I, I go back to Manuel's statement, even or especially in those communities that have been dependent and countries dependent on fossil fuels. They are, you know, they're going to be overburdened in the same way our communities uh, are that have been overburdened with pollution, who will really benefit from the move to, the, to a just clean energy future. So, Jennifer, I, I detect over the last year or so, well, a growing fatigue, but also a growing frustration um, anger that uh, you know we're under delivering under delivering under delivering right so for many of the people that you serve many of the countries that you serve yeah they've got a they've got a scramble to be at a cop but um, you know tired of going home with not everything that they really need how, how do you as the World Bank group think about cops in terms of your own work now um yeah thanks Rachel and you know last year's cop was kind of a game changer, if that's the right word, COP27 for the first time, you know, MDBs, we're just observers to this process, right? But the first time we actually were referenced, you know, um, and the whole um, MDB reform agenda and World Bank reform agenda. So for the last six months, everyone's been reforming us um, at every single level, private sector, UN, all the agencies, but we're delighted because we actually have moved forward with our evolution roadmap of really, you know, focusing on poverty, but in a liv livable planet. I really like the livable planet concept because that's livable for people, for nature, for animals. Um, so it really captures it all. But what we see at COP, three big things. First of all, COP is about negotiations, right? And so how do we um, stick, make sure that we stick to the 1.5 degrees? We do not let people or countries off the hook. I think that's really, really important. Um, and then continue the dialogue on loss and damage. That's very, very important as well. Methane, so these big initiatives that have been talked about, we really want to be out there supporting them as much as possible. The bank, the other MDBs working with them, and of course, the, the countries that we're, we're supporting. I mean, the second one is really uh, looking at the adaptation agenda, the, the poorest countries, the most impacted countries, and how we can focus. We're excited to see that health is now, health is included in COP. There's a, going to be a lot on inclusion and fragility, water, reforming food systems. So there's a whole nature-based solutions, adaptation, development, another package that's very, very important. But finally, and I think last but not least, let's talk about climate finance. And I'm really happy that, you know, Mark, you raised the issue of, of harmful subsidies. And we just uh, launched a report, Richard Domania, our, our, one of our chief economists, uh, wrote a report called Detox Development. And I just think the title is beautiful. It's fantastic. And in fact, Ajay Banga, our president just today um, at the UN General Assembly and the SDG Summit, made reference to the fact that we really want to focus on uh, not removing subsidies completely because that's so politically difficult, but how do you repurpose subsidies? And I think repurpose fossil fuel subsidies 
Uh, Mark, you pointed to, you know, 8 million premature deaths, right? We had 7 million each year due to air pollution. And we know that the subsidies are, are not necessarily pro-poor. Um, and we know that if we look at in 2021, countries around the world actively paid about $577 billion to artificially lower the price of polluting fuels. So that's oil, gas, and coal. So that's there. How do we repurpose subsidies in the right direction? But let's, it's not just about fossil fuel subsidies, agriculture subsidies. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge opportunity also. Again, agriculture subsidies, if you unpack them, they actually tend to go to the richer farmers um, because they have more inputs and so, and they produce more outputs. Um, but they don't usually uh, improve their productivity or their efficiency. And in fact, what it does, it turns the opposite direction. It, um, the subsidies incentivize uh, more fertilizer use. It suppresses agriculture productivity, sends all kinds of pollution into the waterways, um, and damages people's health. So again, can we focus on uh, the subsidy agenda, the reforming subsidies, repurposing subsidies as part of the climate finance um, equation? And Rachel, I can't. Um, the last word has to be carbon pricing, and I think you've you've taught us all that the importance of a carbon price, and you know that really has to be fundamental to everything we do. So hopefully, we can move the needle on that as well. Well, Jennifer, yeah, that would be great. Um, I I hope so. We've come to the uh, end of our allotted time, and there is, I mean, there's just so much more we could we could discuss. But hopefully, we've. Uh, laid down some markers for the podcast that will come in the rest of this series. So I want to thank uh, Mark, Manuel, uh, Ruth, the two Davids, uh, Gavin and Jennifer for their for their insights, for their commitment, for the work that they do every day, for holding a hope uh, while um, uh, staring at the science and some of the difficult political um, constraints uh, in the face. And I think what we take away from this is that we, we're out of time. Uh, we have some really serious um, problems in store if we do not take every opportunity at the earliest opportunity to reduce emissions, reduce emissions, reduce emissions. We have to find it within ourselves to build a fairer society, leaving no one behind so that we can adapt, so that we can build the resilience so that we can take care of everybody as we promised that we would at, at the Paris Agreement. Um, and that the system isn't really working that well, right? I mean, there are 800 million people who don't have access to electricity. We never got them any access to electricity. Oh, well, maybe we can find different ways to do it. Uh, the water system is expensive and scarce and doesn't serve people well. Sanitation, the same. And that's the SDG agenda that's being discussed. So we have a system that worked for some, didn't work for all. And we have a planet that's paying the price. Um, and so there is huge hope in that because we have a lot of the technology. We have brilliant scientists. Uh, we have plenty of cash. We just uh, uh, invest it in the wrong way and um, are profligate with it. Um, our tax systems don't really refer to the crisis that we're facing. And we have harmful fossil fuel subsidies, harmful food subsidies. All of these things are for discussion at future at future. Um, uh, future podcasts. But here we have the United Arab Emirates uh, with the presidency, with all eyes on them, with 72 days to go. And the job of the presidency uh, is not to put forward your own economy's solutions. That's an important story. The job of the presidency is to pull everybody into the room, 
sit them down and get them to make agreement that they wouldn't make uh, left to their own devices. It is to have every country be their best self. And for that, they need business, they need civil society, indigenous nations, everybody uh, pushing and pushing. Uh, without that, we won't get success. So thank you very much indeed. Uh, this has been uh, a great honor for me. The DSR network uh, has really taken uh, an important step in pulling us all together. And uh, thank you for your participation and keep listening to the other podcasts in the series. Thank you. This special Road to COP28 podcast was produced by the DSR Network, which is solely responsible for its content. Roundtable discussions were recorded live as they happened. The series was sponsored in part by a grant from the Embassy of the United Arab Emirates, hosts of the COP28 meetings, to take place later this year. However, the content of this discussion, like all DSR Network productions, is entirely editorially independent and the views presented were solely those of the participants. The executive producer of this podcast was Chris Cotmore. The producer of this podcast was Riley Fessler. This has been a DSR Network production.